Thank you, Matt and Sarah and Sarah, and really the rest of the, the worship team, the choir, everyone that helps uh, lead us in worship in so many different ways. You know, I, I love that song, and, and I love the way that it provides the necessary focus for us this morning. Because if you're like me at all, then you're probably a creature of habits, right? I mean, we, we all tend to gravitate towards certain routines and rhythms in life. And those routines and those rhythms are helpful, right? I mean, we, we, we value those and we appreciate those. But what happens when we gravitate towards those routines is a lot of times we just start going through the motions, right? And we have a rhythm to life and we, we kind of go through this motion on Sunday mornings where we get ourselves ready for church, we get our families ready for church, and then we show up here and we kind of go through the whole morning and we don't stop to actually ask ourselves, why are we here? Like, what's the point? And, and when we gravitate towards those, those rhythms and those routines, the impulse is kind of based by default and inclination is to start going through these experiences when we gather together as brothers and sisters and really begin to operate more through trying to come here to meet our own interests, right, to meet our own needs. And so we, we go through a Sunday morning experience and we start thinking, well, gosh, did that really meet my needs the way that I wanted them to today? Were those songs the ones that I like? Were they sung the way that I liked? Did that message challenge me? Was it entertaining enough? Was it good enough? What about the, the people that I met? Were they friendly enough? Can I really find friends? And if we're not careful, just by going through the motions, we become somewhat self-focused. And we forget that the Savior that we follow says, I didn't come here to be served, but to serve. And what that song does is it focuses us that we're, we're not here to meet our own needs. We are here to labor unto glory. And I love that message. The word labor biblically actually means to exhaust oneself, to wear yourself out. Our challenge, our task means that we are here to exhaust ourselves for the glory of the Lord. What it means, that song reminds us that there is a task that has been given to us, right? There is a work that has been prepared for us. There is a mission that God has set before us, and that's what we're here to pursue. We want to exhaust ourselves to that end to bring glory to him, to labor for the Lord. That's our desire. That, that is our goal. That is our plan, and that's really what we're going to be walking through for the next several weeks as we focus on Missions Month, but before we can have a meaningful conversation about what that task is and what that mission is, our hearts have to first be in the right posture, where we come and we say, Lord, I'm here to serve, not to be served. I'm, I'm here to labor for your glory and not my own. And so let's, let's go to the Lord and assume that posture as we prepare to open the scriptures. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? And in a spirit of prayer, would you just surrender, if there's any piece of you that has come here today seeking to be served more than serve, would you just confess that before your Father? Just in your own heart, and your own mind, would you just acknowledge that you're here to surrender, to let things go? If you would take a moment in your own heart, in your own mind, and say, Father, I'm here for you. Send me. Father, that is our prayer today, that we can be awakened to the beauty of your call, to the, to the magnificence of your kingdom, of the task that you entrust to us. Father, we, we strive, we, we want to commit ourselves to give all that we are to your glory. So may you now be magnified within us, may you be 
worshipped in this moment as we open your scriptures. May your spirit fill our hearts and our minds as we seek to bring that glory to you today and forevermore. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody this morning. It's Missions Month, which is awesome because I get to wear a t-shirt. Isn't that great? I love it. You never miss an opportunity to wear t-shirts. And, and a couple of things that I want to tell you as we get ready for Missions Month today, a lot of exciting things that will be taking place is, uh, you know, this is a, a unique aspect to our year. We set aside the month of November every year to try to call attention to the mission of God and the work that is entrusted to the church. It, so it is a, a unique aspect to, to UBC. This is part of our core identity is to be missional people. But it's also just unique to the call of being a follower of Christ. Right? This, is, this is something we all need to give thoughtful consideration to on a regular basis. And so we want to come in today with that intentionality and, and really kind of navigate through that for the next few weeks. And, and so a couple of things that I want to do on the front end is, is kind of lay some groundwork for, for what we're going to be able to provide to you for Missions Month, kind of the trajectory we're going through before we get to the text today. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we have so many wonderful things going on. Uh, we're going to start this conversation by talking about today and the next week, what does it mean to be a missional people? Right? What does it mean to, to live on mission, essentially, for this kingdom? And, and so as we kind of highlight that today, we're going to talk in more broad categorizations of, of how do we practically pursue that and, and what does the scripture command but at every step of this journey, we want to give you all some practical ways to respond. And so one of the things that we're going to do today is invite you to a missions fair that is in Harris Hall, right down, halfway down the Miracle Mile as you're going back out to the North Park. Just hang a right there. It's halfway down. We want everyone to go to the missions fair today. Um, we have all of the ministries that are really kind of connected to the mission of UBC. They've got booths in there. We're even going to bribe you with snacks and, and some other things that would maybe compel you to go. But it is, it's awesome. I don't know if you saw it before you came down here, but it's incredible. In fact, special thanks to Janae Pilcher. She's in here. I don't know if she is, but she has done a great job coordinating that. And then anybody that you see wearing a shirt, they've put a lot of effort in getting their booth set up. And so uh, that is designed, though, to give you some practical feedback to say, well, how do I respond to the mission of God? What are some practical things that I can do? And so we highlight a lot of those ministries here at UBC. We want you to see that today. Next week, we're going to continue that emphasis on what does it mean to be a missional people. And, and next week, we're going to get more specific. Uh, next Sunday is Orphan Sunday nationwide. And so we're going to really dive into that subject and see what the responsibility is for us as believers to care for the orphan. Uh, and so a couple of ways that you can participate in that. Next Sunday morning from the 9 to 10, 15 hour, that, that Sunday Connect hour, we're going to have a couple of organizations that are going to be in Harris Hall doing a little bit of a presentation and a little Q&A for people that want to know, man, how do, how do I engage um, from volunteering to advocacy to even on the farther end of fostering and adopting? Uh, we want to create a meaningful dialogue with how you can respond and consider those things and in any way in which you want to contribute. And so I would encourage your classes to consider joining us uh, next Sunday morning during that time. If you don't typically come during that hour, that's a great Sunday to come and check it out and hear more. A lot of those folks will be available after the service next Sunday. Uh, we'll dive into the scriptures and, and look at that as well. But that's going to give us a real focused look at what does it mean to be missional people by caring for the orphan. Now, as we progress beyond that for the rest of the month, we're going to take time to look at God's heart. Uh, we're missional people because we serve a missional God. And so we're going to take a look at his heart, his character, his nature, and his love for the nations. And, and then we'll end the month by really just looking at the goal of missions 
and having the chance to really kind of emphasize what happens when all of this uh, comes to a final culmination and, and kind of seeing the goal and the motivation behind it. And so it's going to have a lot of opportunity for us to respond. Another thing that we try to create an awareness of during this particular week is the World Mission Offering. And so if you have never heard that term before, let me just quickly define it for you. A couple of ways that you can get information on it. Your worship guide should have some of these highlights on the inside of it. But if you haven't seen this yet, please grab one before you leave today. We put several out at the entrances into the sanctuary and throughout the hallways, and they will also be at the missions fair. But this is a little missions brochure that we put together, and on the inside cover, you've got a little description of the World Mission offering, as well as a highlighting of all the different ministries and different ways that you can connect. So the World Mission offering is, is a way in which we set aside an opportunity for people to give over and above their normal tithe to the missional endeavors of UBC. And, and it's the best way to give comprehensively to all these ministries that we're highlighting. And so we set an annual goal. The missions committee sets an annual goal of around $25,000. We, we would love to meet that and exceed that goal as a way to sustain and continue to move intentionally into all these efforts. And so pray about that. Pray on how you can give to that and designate some of those things if that's something you want to do. But, but it really is designed to give you just an intentional opportunity to look at all the different ways that we can respond to the mission of God. Now, the theme, right, the, the kind of theme that we're going to use to navigate this discussion is harvest. And you heard Kevin give a good introduction on that earlier. And, and the passage today will help bring some clarity to that. But it essentially be, what does it mean to be workers in the harvest? What is the, the heart of the Lord of the harvest? And then what is the culmination? What does the harvest actually look like? That's going to be the imagery that we play on over the next several weeks. And so I'm really excited to navigate this journey with you all. And, and really, as we begin it today, we want to introduce that theme of work, right? What does it mean to be a worker in the harvest? And so I want to begin by talking about work ethic, okay? And, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of work ethic. For me, I tend to think back on the various jobs that I've had through the course of my life. And, and what I can see when I look back on all these different opportunities or, or positions that I've held a lot of times my work ethic is, is has, has a direct correlation to the motivation for the work, okay? So like I, my mom and my dad, they did a good job of instilling a, a decent work ethic within me, but I think we all can agree that depending on your motivation, it'll kind of influence just how hard you're going to work for something. So like, for example, my first job uh, that I've mentioned to you all before, I was a busboy at Abuelos, okay? It's not like that was a childhood dream of mine, you know, and I just couldn't wait to go clean tables. The reason I took that job is because one day my mom came home and she said, you need a job, don't come back till you get one, all right? And Abuelos was the closest restaurant. So I drove to Abuelos and got a job and then came home and that was it. And so I bust tables. And so my work ethic, though I worked hard, was a direct correlation. It was really just motivation by obligation, right? I was, I was obligated to do this for my mom. And so my work ethic was kind of reflected in that. Uh, different uh, approach was maybe later in college, I was an after-school program coordinator uh, for a local elementary school, and I enjoyed working with kids. I enjoyed working in the community, but to be honest, I'd found a girl. I was in love, and I wanted to buy a ring, right? And so my motivation was monetary. Like, I needed to save money so that I could get engaged, and so once I had enough saved, I was done. I moved on. You know, it was, it was a motivation driven by my own self-needs, similar in seminary. I was a project manager for a commercial real estate company and, and was interesting work. I enjoyed it, but I wanted to pay for school. And so my, my motivation was driven by paying for my education. Once my education was done, I moved on. 
And so it really wasn't until I started in ministry that I started really enjoying the nature of the work itself. And so I see the ebb and flow to work ethic, and, it, and it's taught me now as a parent the, the value of just instilling a good work ethic in my own children. And, and that's been an interesting journey in of itself, right? Because when children show up, all they do is eat, sleep, cry. You know, you're not talking to them about the value of work ethic. You're just trying to keep them alive, okay? And they, you're the one doing all the work, and it's exhausting to all the expectant parents in the room. I'm sorry, but it is. It's like I've never been tired until I actually had a child. And so everything that you're doing is about meeting their needs, right? And you're just pouring into them, and it's all directed at focusing on them. And then somewhere along the way, as they get to the later stages of being a toddler, just out of sheer exhaustion, you start to see if they can do anything on their own. You're like, could you please get yourself dressed today? And and they come back in, and their shirt's on backwards, and you're like, good enough. That's great. Thank you. Can you please put on your own shoes? We'll get Velcro, all the Velcro that you need. Can you get your own glass of water? And, and you're just doing it out of your own needs to see if they can just be somewhat self-sufficient, okay? And that's usually how it starts. And, and that would be okay. But then one day, something amazing happens, right? Not too long ago, I was standing in my kitchen. I was doing the dishes. And as I was getting ready to, to start this chore, I heard this sweet amazing, angelic voice fill the air, right? It was from my, my little girl, and she said some magical words that I, I was so blown away by hearing. She said, Dad, can I help? And I was like, what? <laughs> by all means, yes. Now, when a parent first hears this, because I had heard it before, you usually meet it with some skepticism because not everything can a child really help with. They actually kind of create more struggles than not. But this was a, st- a stage where I thought, well, yeah, you might be able to. Let's try this out. And so I brought the chair up, set her next to the sink, and, and I started to think, well, this will be fine. I'll do the dishes with my daughter. And she turned to me and she goes, no, Dad, I'll do it all by myself. I stood back. I watched her start to wash the dishes. I lifted my hands up to heaven. I said, thank you, Jesus. She's actually helping. And I realized I'd entered into a whole new sweet spot in my life. Because even now, my son's the same way. This weekend, he was walking around with like Windex and and paper towels going, what else can I clean? And I'm like, anything, you know? (laughs) And so I'm taking full advantage. I'm like asking him to do stuff. I'm like, can you get me a drink of water? And they'll do it. It's amazing. And so the reason it's really compelling is not so much the work itself, but the motivation behind it. Because here's what I love about my children at this stage, because I know it's a short window, is they're not doing it out of obligation. They're not doing it to meet their own self-interest. What they've done is they've looked to mom and dad, and they see what we're doing, and they say, can I help? And their one motivation is to please mom and dad. That's the goal for us through the course of this month, right, is that we would look at the work of the Father, and not out of obligation, not out of a motivation to meet our own self-interest, we would look to see what he cares about, and we say, can I help? And the only thing that is driving us is that we want to please our Father in heaven. That's the whole goal and spirit of this month. And so let's begin that discussion today by looking more intently what it means to be a missional people. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Now, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew pretty much for the most of the fall, if you've been with us at all. We, we kind of walked through this series of identity where we talked about how our key convictions, our fundamental beliefs shape who we are. And as Jason walked us through last week, eventually those convictions begin to work themselves from the inside out. And that changes how we conduct ourselves. It changes how we live. 
And so we're going to continue on that theme. Now, when we started this series on identity, we looked at Matthew chapter 4, and we talked about how Jesus had called his disciples. And and after chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4, there's this really neat summary statement that I want to draw your attention to. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. But it's very similar to what we're looking at today. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew writes this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Right? So he, he uses this summary statement, which is really interesting because essentially it's foreshadowing everything Matthew's about to teach us. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, we get a very explicit look at how Jesus was teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's the Sermon on the Mount. But then chapters 8 and 9, we see how Jesus went healing every sickness and disease. And so it kind of is this foreshadowing to what Matthew's about to tell us, and it sounds almost exactly the same to what we're going to look at today. We see Matthew return to this summary statement in chapter 9, kind of bookending this section, but then also using it as a transition to how Jesus now entrusts the work to his disciples that you see in chapter 10. So let's take a look at this summary statement again and how Matthew uses it towards the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Hey, this, this passage obviously introduces this theme of work in the harvest. But one of the reasons I selected it for today is because I believe that summary statement and even the transitional verse prior to it gives us a great example of what the work really is and, and how we should go about it and, and what we can learn from Jesus and how he models it for us. And so I want to break down those first few verses first and then we'll end kind of with just a, a reference to this prayer for more workers. So the, the, the first thing I want to draw our attention to is that opening statement that says, Jesus went to all the villages and towns. You know why I love that? I love it because it doesn't say Jesus went to some of the villages or towns, or he went to a few of the villages or towns, or he, he formed a subcommittee from his disciples to evaluate which were the most influential towns and villages that they could focus on over the next few years, right? He said he went to all of them, every single one. When we begin to consider the work of the Lord, the, the mission of God, we need to see the totality with which God entrusts us with this task. We, we see the comprehensive nature to go to all people. Everyone matters. And that's something that we need to constantly remind ourselves of because our tendency is to gravitate to that which is familiar and comfortable. Right? When you think about how we begin to cultivate our own worlds and our own experiences, a lot of times we just create these environments that make us familiar with the people around us. So we gravitate to people that look like us and think like us and have the same income level as us and have the same interests and hobbies and all these different things, and we kind of insulate ourselves from the rest of the world. We kind of curate these nice little Christian bubbles, and our lives don't really reflect a desire for all peoples. And so part of embracing the mission of God is going beyond those tendencies and saying, no, we're, we're going to be about everyone. And so we, we want that reflected here in our church, right? We're, we're not going to just go target younger people so we can be the cool, latest, trendy church. We're not going to just target wealthy people so we can help meet the budget. We're not going to just target the people that think like us and look like us. We want a church that says, man, all are welcome, 
You care about everyone. Because what we see is that what Jesus models for us here in the Gospel of Matthew turns into the command in Matthew 28, right? All, all, all villages and all towns turns into all peoples, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. That's what he says. Now, that word nation doesn't really mean country, right? It's not how we would think of nation. It's the Greek word ethne, which means peoples. And this is where we need to learn a few more terms to really have a meaningful conversation today. Some, some of you are probably familiar with a few of these terms, but it's important for us to all be on the same page. When we start talking about being missional people in today's climate, we need to have a heart for all peoples. So, so some of the terminology that you see, and I, I get a lot of these definitions from the joshuaproject.net. It's a great resource. Uh, let's start with people groups. We don't think in terms of country, we think of people groups. A people group is defined by the largest group of people within which the gospel can spread without encountering a barrier of understanding or acceptance. Right? So, so if you think about one of those barriers like language, okay, if you can't communicate with somebody else, then it's, it's a barrier that's going to get in the way of the gospel being understood and accepted. Okay, so, so a people group is going to have this commonality in culture, in language, and so it's a large group of people, the largest possible group within which the gospel can move. Now, you, you couple that with another term that we now use, which is unreached. Okay, now, unreached is typically defined by a group of people that has less than 2% evangelical Christians, which means it's going to require some form of outside assistance and resources for the gospel to, to spread. Right, so when you combine those terms, unreached people groups, the way that we begin to think about the task today to really pursue all peoples, we can identify, according to Joshua Project, more than 7,000 unreached people groups on our planet. What does that mean? It means more than 3.13 billion people have little access to the gospel. That should weigh heavy on the church. Right, if we're truly going to be a missional people, we have to be mindful of the 3.13 billion that are still considered unreached. Now, a lot of times we think about that statistic and it's overwhelming. But the reality is, is it doesn't require us to get on a plane and cross an ocean to engage these people. They're here. Right? I believe the United States has around 84 unreached people groups, more than 10.6 million people that have that same heritage and lineage that are within our own proximity. So you could get on a plane and fly to New York and have conversations with unreached people groups. You don't even have to get on a plane. You could drive down to Houston. You know what? You don't even have to leave town. We could all go here today and go to different areas of this city, different apartment complexes, and literally engage unreached peoples. So if we're really going to be about all people, that needs to be reflected in our lives. If we're going to be a church that pursues those things, it's going to start with us as individuals. So that's a question. Does your life reflect a love for all people? Can you point to specific examples and, and evidence where you say, yes, I am following the model of Jesus. I'm going to everyone that needs to hear this truth. That's what Jesus sets as an example. Where this is for everyone. This is for all people. That's the first thing we need to think about when we think about the mission of God. Now, let's say we, we pursue that and we start engaging these folks. Well, what do we do? What is the work look like? Well, there are three words that are found in this passage that I think provide a great summary of what the work looks like. It's proclamation, teaching, and healing, right? Those are the three things that Jesus did as he went around to these villages. And so let's, let's walk through that briefly. First, proclamation, okay? We have to actually share the gospel. 
with our words, right? It's, it's a word that means to urge, to persuade, to declare, to herald, right? We, we go with a message. We can't just kind people into the kingdom, right? We can't just be nice and hope that they understand the reason for our niceness. We have to actually share what it is that has changed us, why we're serving, why we care about them. That, that has to be something that we're prepared to offer. It requires proclamation. And so part of our responsibility here as a church is to make sure we as the saints are equipped to actually communicate the gospel. And then we actually go do it. In fact, we've got people that regularly do this throughout the week, Thursday afternoons, tonight, Sunday evening. There are folks that are gonna be going out, engaging the community, ready to share the gospel with those who haven't heard it. That's the sort of people that we need to be. But it's not just scheduling time. It's looking for it in your natural spheres of influence, at work, at home, in your neighborhoods. Do I know, am I able to proclaim the gospel? And we often refer to this as evangelism. But the reason I love this synopsis is because it doesn't allow us to just stop at evangelism, right? We don't just proclaim, we teach. And part of the mistake that we make is that, number one, we see evangelism and it's overwhelming, it's, it's fearful, and so we say, I don't really want to do it. But then maybe we get over those fears and we do it, but then we stop there. And we think the goal is a decision. And, and maybe we're fortunate enough to see somebody pray a prayer or walk down an aisle and we're like, look at this, it's amazing. But that's not the end of the work. We teach. Right? Jesus says, teach to obey. How many years did he spend teaching his disciples? Right? How many years did Paul stay in Ephesus? Right? This is an ongoing relationship, and it is a relationship. We don't see numbers. We don't see statistics. We see people. We see stories, and we say, hey, now I've shared this message. Can I teach you what it means? Can I walk with you through what this looks like? Right? The, the word teaching here is defined as the development of the pupil. The highest development of the pupil is the goal. We invest in people. We, we teach them what it means to follow Jesus. And we go with healing. Here's the reality. When we actually go and we, we embrace the work of the mission, you know what we're going to discover when we begin to proclaim and we begin to teach? We're going to find out that people are hurting. We're, we're going to discover that they have actual needs, that, that go beyond just the spiritual needs of forgiveness and mercy and grace. They're going to have actual physical needs, and if we aren't prepared to actually help meet those needs, if we're not prepared to actually help meet them in some of those situations, then our words are going to fall on deaf ears. We're going to sound like a, a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal, as Paul would say it. We, we can't just talk about Christ's love. We need to demonstrate Christ's love. We bring healing for the sick, for the hurting. And that, that's the work of the gospel. That's the work of the kingdom, proclamation, teaching, healing. And so one of the things that we should do honestly as we begin this conversation this month is to evaluate, well, how, how are we doing? Is this taking place? And so let me give you some, some more comprehensive statistics to evaluate, not just really us as a specific congregation, but the church at large. I'm going to borrow from the Lusanne movement. Now, if you're familiar with this movement at all, it was started by Billy Graham in 1974, right? The first place it took place was in Lusanne, Switzerland, and it was a congregation or a, kind of a, a gathering of, of Christian leaders and believers. A global congress was kind of the vision to help reshape and understand the mission of the church. It was here that thinkers like John Stott began to use terms like unreached people groups, Okay. 
And so this, this movement still exists today. You can go on and find their website, and they, they track progress and, and where are we and how are we staying focused. And some of these statistics kind of measure how so far the church has responded to this task. Here are some things that, that we need to be mindful of. 86% of Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims do not personally know a Christian. 86%. They're not even in proximity to have somebody that can even begin to proclaim, teach, or heal. That statistic has to change. And again, it doesn't require us getting on a plane and flying overseas. Several years ago, I was in New York on a mission trip, and we were working in the streets of Harlem, and I went into this little uh, market that was predominantly concentrated by West African immigrants, and I met a man from Senegal, Muslim man, and he and I were talking, he he talked to me a lot about his Muslim faith. I shared with him a little bit of the gospel and what we were doing there. And, and when we started talking, you know what he told me? He said, you know, you're the first Christian I've ever met here. I said, really? How long have you been here? You know what he said? 18 years. 18 years in this country, and he'd never met a Christian. Which tells us how easy it is for us to, to look past people, to not consider all people, or when we do encounter them, we don't proclaim, teach, or heal. That, that should not be a reality. Yet it's the one within which we currently live. It's not just um, the, the folks that don't have a personal relationship. You know why that's the issue? When you begin to look at how churches motivate and structure themselves according to these same statistics, 85% of our uh, evangelism out efforts, our outreach efforts, are geared towards who? Christians. <laughs> 85%. Of our efforts tend to target, guess what, the people that we feel comfortable with. The people that already think like us, look like us, and act like us. And that's why we are having very limited success. When it comes to giving, less than 1% is given towards unevangelized non-Christians. Less than 1%. Again, more than 85% of it is spent on ourselves now, we as, as individuals can't just drastically change those percentages, but you know what we can do? We cannot fall victim to them. Our congregation can be different, right? As individuals, we can be different. We can lead a different life. And so what we need to do is do some introspection as we approach this responsibility and this task that God has put before us. And we can ask ourselves, what, what do our lives reflect? Right? Can you point to things that fulfill the work of the Lord? What's the ratio? How much time are you spending being taught, being proclaimed to, and being healed versus the amount of time that you're the one actually proclaiming, actually teaching, and actually healing? That's where we begin to really respond in a meaningful way to this gospel, right? And when we engage in this work, here's what I love about this passage. When we engage and commit ourselves to that, you know what happens? Our perspectives drastically change. And you see that with Matthew's description here. Right, what happens? Jesus, it says then, after he does all these things, Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion on them because he saw that they were harassed and distressed like sheep without a shepherd. Our perspective drastically changed. Jesus saw the crowds. That word saw means to pay attention to, to consider, to be concerned with. So part of what happens is that our concerns change. We begin to commit ourselves to the work of the Lord. We, we see the need. We see the brokenness around us. And our desires, our concerns change. 
The American Psychological Association does this annual survey that identifies the top concerns of Americans. And in 2017, you know what the top five were? The future of our country, money, careers, the political climate, and, and crime and violence. Now, those are all legitimate concerns. I'm not going like, to make light of those things, but they also reflect that they don't really align with what the work of the Lord is. And so maybe we need to think about, okay, well, let's not worry about the concerns of our nation. Let, let's, let's worry about the concerns of the church. What do we typically see in the church? And again, I think that's just on my own experience, not drawing from statistics or research, is where a lot of times we can easily lose focus. Right? And we become concerned about things that aren't really living into the work that God has entrusted us. Right? We'll, we'll get focused in on personal preferences related to teaching styles or music or programs and all these different things. And a lot of it's driven by this kind of overarching concern of growth. We want our church to grow. We want more people. We want more money given to the budget. Now listen, I say this all the time. I am not anti-growth. I want our church to grow. I want it to grow in the right way. That's what I want. I don't want it to grow because we've gone and targeted people that already think like us, that are already believers, and turn it into rush. Right? No, hey, join us. We got better friends. We got better music. We got better things over here. That's not how we need to grow. Now, this way is harder. This way means, well, we, we go to all people, people that aren't looking for Jesus, that aren't looking for the church, and we figure out how do we actually teach, how do we actually proclaim, and how do we actually heal. And so one of the things that we're trying to do to, to challenge us to do that are these discipleship groups that we've talked about, right? I mean, now that's, that's one of many. And a lot of these ministries that you're going to look at today are ways that you can practically begin to meet people's needs. But, but when we convene in these smaller groups, again, we're still implementing these. And if you haven't had a chance to participate in one yet, I hope you will in the spring as we start to get them all ramped up. That's the opportunity where we gather together as believers and we say, Man, how do I share my faith in a meaningful way? How do I learn how to teach others what it means to follow Jesus? And how do I actually meet their needs? And we get to learn those things, not in a seminar, not in a whiteboard discussion, but in the context of community, in the context of just pouring into God's word, in the context of meaningful accountability. You know what? That should be enough. We don't have to dress it up in bells and whistles and make it fancier and more entertaining. That should be enough because that's the work we've been called to. That's our, that's our motivation. That's our goal. And when we do that, the perspective changes. Jesus sees the brokenness, and what, is it what does he see? He sees they're distressed. He sees that they're hurting. He sees that they are sheep without a shepherd. Right? There, there is brokenness all around us, and the thing that I want to extract from that description is this imagery of the shepherd. I love this, right? Because a shepherd obviously cares for the flock, guides the flock, makes sure the flock has pasture and a place to eat and is, and is well cared for. But you know what else a shepherd does? A, a shepherd embraces danger, takes a risk, right? Because there, there are things that are going to threaten the flock that they're going to have to face and they're going to have to fight, which tells us that pursuing God's call is not easy. It's going to be risky. Right, listen, no, no shepherd is comfortable facing a lion, but he does it anyway because that's part of the work. Right? There's nothing easy about pursuing this. It's not going to be just um, laid out for us simplistically. We're going to have to truly take risk and step out of our comfort zone to make these things happen, but that's what the work requires. 
And what will make it so meaningful is not because we're doing it out of obligation or to meet our own needs, but because our hearts have changed. Jesus refers to it here as compassion. Right? He was, he was moved by compassion. The word compassion means to be moved with pity. And so a lot of times we, we talk about compassion and we think about the, the pity aspect of it, like the sympathy aspect of it and the things that, that pull on our heartstrings. And that's, that's part of it. But what I want to emphasize today is the movement, <laughs> to be moved with pity, right? Compassion results in action, right? It, it, it relates to or it, it draws us to movement, right? It's not enough just to say, I'm praying for you. It requires a phone call. It requires a visit or a meal or something intentional. It's not enough to change our profile picture and to use a hashtag. We need to actually move with compassion. That's the work that God has called us to. I mean, imagine for a moment, y'all, just imagine if this is how we were known. As individuals and as a congregation, the people looked in and said, man, there is a group, there is a people that loves everyone. And they're doing everything they can to proclaim and teach and heal through the power of the gospel. And they are compassionately driven by the brokenness around them. They see things differently. Imagine if we live this in the way that God has put it in front of us. That's our desire. And so Jesus pursues this and then he gives us this sobering reality with these final words and he says you know what the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few so pray to the lord of the harvest to send out more workers the reality is y'all when we barely begin to look at the mission that has been laid out for us the work that is laid out for us few want to do it few want to respond to it will you will we so that we're not doing it alone but we're doing it together And we commit ourselves to not being those who want to be served, but who want to serve. Because we want to labor for the Lord. We want to exhaust ourselves for his work. Is that what we can be the ones that we're known for being? That's what he puts in front of us. Now, it's overwhelming. It's heavy. But I want to end with a word of promise that's embedded in that final prayer. More than I want us leaving here today thinking about the workers for few, I want us to hear Jesus say, the harvest is plentiful. Think about that. A couple years ago, I was walking through India, through the streets of Delhi, into this incredible slum area. I'd never seen anything like it my whole life. And I'm walking through these slums, and I'm surrounded by unimaginable poverty, things I couldn't even really comprehend until seeing it. And this poverty was cloaked in violence and crime. It was cloaked in idolatry. And I began to be so overwhelmed by it, I thought, this is easily one of the darkest corners of the world that I've ever seen. And yet, I was following a local pastor, one who had seen these people, who had committed himself to come and to to proclaim and to teach and to heal, because he saw their distress He saw their brokenness and he was moved with compassion. And I marveled at the fact that the gospel, even there, was present. And I realized in that moment, there is not a corner of this earth that God is not pursuing. The harvest is plentiful. Our labor is not in vain. 
So the only response that's left for us is the one that we should all commit to today. To fall at his feet. To look at his work. To see what he wants to achieve and simply say, Father, can I help? And that our hearts would be moved not because of an obligation and not because it's going to meet our own needs, but because we want to please our Father in heaven and for his glory above all else. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we are so grateful for all that you're doing around this world. And we confess the many times, Father, that we neglect to see the work that you've entrusted to us. And we pray that as we commit ourselves to this topic, not just today, but over the next few weeks, that you would lead us in a way that allows us to respond meaningfully and responsibly. Father, that, that each of us would be able to lock, not look just to our own interests, but to the interests of others, and truly begin to, to see ourselves as those who you have sent to work in the harvest. I pray that you would stir each of us today to, to prayerfully consider where we begin to step into those things and, and pursue those things in a meaningful way. I pray that you would ignite this church to be exactly what we've, dis- we've seen described as our Savior as being, that we would be a people who look to all places, to look to all nations, to look to everyone and, and seek to truly be those folks who can, who can proclaim this gospel, teach this gospel, and bring the healing power of this gospel in practical and meaningful ways. God, that our hearts would be moved by compassion because we know that we don't go alone that you go before us and that we are able to anticipate that this harvest is ready. It is plentiful. So may we commit ourselves to that end today and forevermore in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.